Good morning. Appreciate the opportunity and would like to thank Payne Week and its sponsors for the, the chance to be here and to share my perspective with you. And uh, I know that it can be daunting for those of you who consider the risks associated with uh, prescribing controlled medications, especially when you think about the legal aspects of it. And I want to tell you that my goal today is going to be to empower you, not to scare you and to help you uh, develop some general tools and largely just sort of three to four steps that you can go through in your head every single time you want to make sure that you're doing things the right way. And so you'll see a lot of uh, repetition in what I'm uh, saying and that is purposeful. Uh, I am with the law firm DCBA Law and Policy. Uh, we do work with uh, healthcare companies. We also manage a couple of nonprofits. One of them is CLAD, the Center for Lawful Access and Abuse Deterrence, and that's an organization dedicated to reducing prescription drug abuse. And CLAD does uh, accept funding from members of the pharmaceutical industry as well as uh, laboratories and healthcare uh, providers. Uh, and the funders of CLAD are disclosed on its website. Uh, the objectives are uh, pretty straightforward. We basically want you to identify the thoughts that you should process in your own head before prescribing a controlled prescription medication. So making sure that you've considered the alternatives and that there's no better treatment available that would be, a bit, that would be at lower risk to the patient and to you. And then give you some internal questions that, would ask, that you would ask yourself uh, when you're prescribing or even re-prescribing a controlled prescription medication. Like, for example, is this going to make the patient better off? Is this going to result in the benefits significantly outweighing the risks and detriments? And then looking at what are sort of the three factors that you really need to document in your medical record to ensure that you're in compliance with your obligations under federal and state controlled substances acts, as well as civil liability laws and case law, and then uh, additionally, um, state criminal laws, as we know that there's a lot going on around the prosecution of some rogue prescribers. <clears throat> so we're gonna talk generally about controlled medications. And I wanna make it clear that I've made this presentation about controlled medications broadly for a number of reasons. One of those is that even that we're at pain week, we understand that people who have pain are oftentimes subject to stigma. And it might be considered by some that it's in their head or it's not real if you can't uh, see it on a, an x-ray, it doesn't exist. Also, uh, the, the fact that we're dealing now with legal risks that are effectively the same if you look at the classification of controlled medications. So a Schedule II medication, whether it's an opioid or a non-opioid, is going to pose the same level of risk and be subject to the same level of controls right? as another Schedule II that might be in a different class in a non-opioid medication. And so we're going to be effectively recognizing that legally those risks are classified by the schedule under state and federal laws regardless of the class of medication from a therapeutic perspective. And uh, we're going to effectively um, uh, take a look at what a lot of the trends are now that are going on, given that we know that there are CDC guidelines that are being adopted by insurers and that uh, we know that the malpractice trial bar is actively pursuing and trying to implement so that they can benefit from litigation related to non-adherence to the CDC guidelines, and then alternatives where those are not consistent 
with what is realistic based on things like risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, training approved by the FDA, as well as labeling for the medications approved by the FDA as well. And an important part of what we're going to be discussing in each of these steps that we go through to address this legal standard for safe prescribing of controlled medications is how then to adjust your treatment plan based on what you find each time that you assess your patient. And that documentation, of course, is going to be crucial to you as well. And um, part of this is going to include just one slide on urine drug testing, because that is increasingly a complicated area for prescribers of controlled medications, especially opioids, where there are some mandates in some instances for urine drug testing, but there's not insurance coverage or there's very restrictive insurance coverage. And how do you balance those demands that are in conflict with one another? Uh, we won't be able to go into great detail, but I do think that I can set forth some principles for you that you can perhaps work on on the plane ride back or take home and give some thought to as you try to continue to develop your best practices. I also want to really make clear that as an attorney, I can say that your mere presence here as a prescriber of controlled medications does a great deal for you because you're one of the diligent individuals who not just is willing to pay in terms of your time and your money to come and learn, and you're also out of the office. For those of you who are solo practitioners or self-employed, you're actually losing revenue by being here. Those of you who are using your vacation days, all of that if it does make a strong case that you are one of the good individuals. You are one of the good prescribers who's trying to do things right, and that does make a difference. So you should feel very proud that uh, you are among the best by your commitment to following the best practices, and that will, of course, if it were ever necessary, make a difference in the minds of somebody who would consider all the facts and what would occur in any sort of case. I'm interested in getting an idea as to who you are and what your practice areas are. I heard from one of my colleagues that there's a great deal of, of uh, primary care practitioners here, and I'm assuming that many of you uh, do prescribe, considering the topic of the uh, discussion today is prescribing controlled medications. So I'd like to know uh, if you do not prescribe controlled medications in your practice, but maybe you support someone who does. Is there anyone here who does not prescribe controlled medications? Okay. Is anyone wanting to, uh, willing to tell me what your role is? Pharmacist. Pharmacist. Okay. Great. Uh, who's another person? Okay. Is there any non-prescriber, non-pharmacist? Sir. Okay. Okay. So your role is basically to ensure that the patient remains safe and receives the best care, and you might actually offer some sort of. Uh, Second level of the check and balance on the prescription? Okay, terrific. Good to know. Uh, who here is practicing in a primary care setting? Okay. Hospital setting? Emergency? Okay. Uh, in a pain care setting? Specific uh, to palliative care? Okay. And does anyone here prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder? All right. And then who prescribes other controlled prescription medications like stimulants or benzodiazepines? Okay, good. That's very helpful to me. Thank you for that. 
I'm going to try to finish up in about 35 to 40 minutes, and uh, that'll leave us 10 to 15 minutes for questions. So if you do have something, just make a note of it, and we can come back to it uh, in the Q&A session. All right, so from a legal perspective, controlled prescription medications by their definition and by their scheduling are deemed to be uh, of a higher potential for abuse. That's why they are controlled and therefore subject to greater restrictions. And there's a long-standing premise under the law that, of course, when there is a greater risk of any activity, there's obviously a greater duty on the part of the individual who's undertaking that activity, right? And so here we know that the government has identified that there are greater risks associated with certain medications, high potential for abuse, for example. And so there are greater duties then from a legal perspective that are represented in the law because you have to in addition to having your license to practice and your license to prescribe medications, you have to have an additional registration under federal and state laws in order to be able to prescribe these controlled medications. And then there are oftentimes additional requirements that go along with that registration. Some states, of course, requiring mandatory education around the safer prescribing of opioids or abuse uh, identification, intervention, and referrals to treatment. And that, of course, um, makes sense. And frankly, you might know that the American Medical Association has been, for quite some time, opposed to having prescriber education requirements related to the prescribing of controlled prescription medications. Just recently, the AMA suggested that it was open to considering some sort of prescriber education requirements around controlled medications, specifically in the context of the opioid abuse epidemic, and it makes sense to tie that to the registration to prescribe controlled prescription medications. And for those of you who are already here getting the continuing education requirements, it, that sort of mandate, whether it be at the state or potentially at the federal level, only serves you well, right? Because you're already getting the education. And to the extent that you can get the people who are not, who are on the fringes of practice and are trying to do what takes great skill and great education, get them to do it with actual skill and actual education and training, that, of course, makes your field better off, less subject to certain scrutiny, reduces the harmful effects of the uh, rogue prescribing or the negligent prescribing, and, of course, then also improves patient care. So prescription opioid abuse is the topic that is in the news, and it is the topic that, of course, affects the way that you do your professional practice on a daily basis, and naturally, it requires a strong response. If you consider the information that I'm sure you've already had an opportunity to access here at Pain Week related to the government statistics uh, and understanding that we now have a, a vastly changing supply of controlled medications available for abuse, I think that you'll understand, uh, like I do, that much of what we've been doing over the past five to ten years to reduce opioid abuse is actually making a difference because there are fewer prescription opioid medications available in the market or the black market for abuse. The problem is we have not coupled our reductions in supply with corresponding reductions in demand. And so the narco-capitalists are now filling our supply through the illicit channel in black market so that people have access to the illicit fentanyl counterfeit uh, products that might also uh, include uh, counterfeit fentanyl and heroin, of course, and so the overdoses are not necessarily decreasing. But there are results showing that what we're trying to do to address 
the inappropriate prescribing and access to opioid medications through practitioners, those efforts are making a difference. The problem from a policy perspective, though, is that we're seeing that the short-sightedness of the approaches that we took over the past five to ten years is now being exposed because we focus solely on opioids for pain in our responses to the opioid abuse epidemic or more broadly the prescription drug abuse epidemic that really didn't make much sense because again in our legal system as a matter of policy and law we address the risks of these medications by their schedules not by their drug class and so it would have been preferable to actually respond to prescription drug abuse by the schedule under the law instead of by the class opioids for pain in this case so where we saw that there were pill mills in the southeast related to uh, the prescribing immediate release oxycodone and other sorts of products at the neon uh, pill mill uh, places in florida for example that uh, type of model has largely been shut down because of aggressive state laws and then of course aggressive dea and law enforcement action but there's now a phenomenon of the inappropriate prescribing of another opioid, buprenorphine, which is for opioid dependence. There is buprenorphine for pain, but people are prescribing buprenorphine for opioid use disorder in a way that's very similar to the practices of the individuals who were negligently or intentionally wrongfully prescribing opioid analgesics in the past. So what would have made better sense from the get-go is to address all opioids, or even better, all schedules two, three, perhaps even four opioids and those risks as a matter of policy. I think what we're going to see now is we're going to go back and ultimately, as we understand that there is a need to address the risks of other controlled medications, we'll adjust our policies as well. And we saw that just over the past week or so with the FDA issuing new guidance related to benzodiazepine controlled medications, new labeling related to the risks associated with those medications when take, with, taken with opioids. So another key point, and this is where the work that you do is essential, whether you prescribe opioids for pain, other controlled medications, including opioids for opioid use disorder, like methadone or buprenorphine, we want to make sure that we are actually reducing the demand. So of course there's a prevention piece, making sure that people who don't need to be exposed to the risks of prescription, controlled prescription medications are not exposed. So they don't perhaps get that euphoric effect that allows them to feel like they need more or want more or want to try it for purposes of abuse, right? But also then looking at the interventions where there is inappropriate uh, use of the medication and referrals to treatment if someone has a substance use disorder. Uh, and it is going to be essential for the healthcare practitioners to take a primary lead around the interventions and referrals to treatment in addition to the prevention to ensure that we have that greater economic balance between the supply reduction and then also the demand reduction so we can eliminate some of the overdoses and deaths related to the illicit substance use. You can see that there is a, a number of statistics also available about, about the abuse of stimulants. Uh, one thing that I think is uh, interesting for those of you who prescribe stimulant medications, if you're looking at kids, uh, if you uh, look at the middle and high school students, for some of them who are being forced to or who are diverting their medications, bullying is a factor. Right? This is why uh, the patient counseling and really knowing what's going on in the life of your patient is essential. 
Because if a person needs a medication and the person is not able to get the medication because kids are bullying for it for, in order to uh, get access to the medication for purposes of abuse, that's a big risk to the individual, to the community, and potentially even to you. Um, and it's something that can perhaps through counseling be exposed and potentially addressed, although it's a really difficult problem. Benzodiazepine abuse, as I mentioned, is the subject of new labeling requirements but with the risks of benzodiazepines when combined with cough syrups of an opioid uh, class as well as the opioid analgesics, new requirements from the FDA. Uh, and the overdose deaths uh, related to benzodiazepines are uh, pretty uh, prevalent. If you look at some states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, I think uh, Kentucky also has shown that in many incidents of overdose, if you look at the substance that's most commonly found, it's actually benzodiazepines uh, in the autopsies of the overdose decedents. And so um, we want to make sure that we're using these same principles when we're prescribing the other controlled prescription medications, not just the opioids. As I mentioned, the uh, confounding factors in the government data collection I think lead us to believe that perhaps the prescription opioid abuse problem is not getting better when uh, I think that data from organizations like Radars and even some statements from the CDC suggest that we are doing a better job at prescribing these um, opioid medications more safely, but we've got to work on the reduction of the demand, and that includes identifying substance use disorders or problematic substance use, referring to treatment and not feeding into that and making sure that you see also as a part of your job in, in taking care of the overall health of an individual that you uh, address early on the risks of problematic substance use before it gets to the types of substances uh, like heroin. Another thing that's of interest related to the supply of uh, substances leading to the overdoses is that uh, the CDC combined with the FDA and NIDA researchers put out a report earlier this year indicating that the source of the heroin overdose epidemic largely is the heroin price, purity, and availability. It's not that we necessarily see that when someone takes an opioid medication that there's a high likelihood that that person is ultimately going to move to use of that product or heroin and ultimately have uh, the types of problems that I think the media oftentimes mixes up, suggesting that if a person uh, is taking one of these medications that the likelihood is that uh, that person winds up having a problem. No, the, the issue is actually the underlying substance use disorder combined or the risk for substance use combined with the uh, price, purity, and availability of heroin and now the counterfeit uh, fentanyl and other uh, illicit products coming in through the narco-capitalist networks. So my colleague and I did an article. We did a great deal of research into both the laws on the books at the federal and state levels as well as case law related to federal and state controlled substances acts, criminal liability like homicide with the very famous now uh, Lisa Seng case. Uh, we looked at her case early on and then we also analyzed the Conrad Murray case related to the death of Michael Jackson, civil liability laws related to wrongful death and malpractice and we came up with an analysis of what it takes to feel confident that you can protect yourself from liability of these natures whether it be criminal or civil and the four steps that you really need to take always when prescribing a controlled medication are these four here. Verify a legitimate medical need. 
prescribing the ordinary course of professional practice, and that effectively refers to the standard of care, and that's a rapidly changing area in this uh, space, especially related to opioid medications when you see that there are entities that are trying to get involved in dictating what the standard of care is, like, for example, the CDC guidelines. Taking reasonable steps to prevent harm, and that really is what you do as a part of numbers one and two. From a legal perspective, if there is ever any inquiry into your prescribing behaviors, there's a limited set of facts, right? A defense attorney is going to have one medical record and one witness, maybe a couple of witnesses from a uh, medical facility to work with, right? And in those facts, you have to identify these three top three items, that there was a legitimate medical need for the controlled medication, that it was prescribed in a way that reflects the ordinary course of professional practice. And that's why it's such a great thing that you're here today, because you are learning what is appropriate practice for pain, and those principles are very applicable to the prescribing of other controlled medications, because again, the risks are categorized by schedule under U.S. federal and state law. Taking the reasonable steps to prevent harm, and that includes a lot of the best practices that are now being codified by either state mandatory guidelines, state uh, recommended guidelines, uh, or perhaps by insurers in their attempts to require that you follow certain steps related to so, uh, safer prescribing. And, the, and, of course, the most important piece of all of this is documenting it because if you can't prove that you did it through your ordinary record-keeping processes, there's going to be no way for you to actually defend yourself in a manner that gives you security. And I want to make clear that what I'm talking about today is likely, if you follow these top four steps, it will make sure that you are, you know, it, it is a, an approach to make sure that you will not be subject to liability if you earnestly do these things in a way that reflects what you've learned here at Pain Week and otherwise through your education. But it's not a guarantee against the need to defend. Right? But if you do these things and you can show that you did them, you have a very strong defense and the likelihood is very great based on our analysis of case law that you will not be found liable, either criminally or civilly, for inappropriate prescribing of controlled medications. Right? And again, I want to make sure that you're aware that this means that you identify what the facts are, right? You are the one who determines how you implement what you've learned through your education and then do it and document it so that you can have a strong defense if it were ever necessary. So the CDC guideline is one of many of these uh, new efforts by the government to try to, in what, some way or another, codify how it is that you prescribe opioid uh, medications for pain. And the CDC guideline is, of course, limited to primary care, but I know that a number of you are in sort of primary care or hospital settings that might not be specific to pain care. And um, it's also related to acute care, uh, but despite the fact that these guidelines are controversial, and there was a whole session on that based on how these came about, who had an influence on them, the fact of the matter is you need to know them. Even if you're not prescribing in primary care, if you are in pain management, or if you're frankly prescribing other controlled medications that exclude opioids, it still would be helpful to you to learn what it is the CDC is trying to do to influence the prescribing of controlled 
prescription medications, in this case, opioid medications for acute pain in a primary care setting because this is the way that you are going to have to identify what you do. If you deviate from what is recommended, you really need to document why. And that needs to be based on what is that standard of care, the ordinary course of professional practice. And what I've been able to learn just through speaking with some practitioners um, here at Pain Week is that another example of how the CDC guidelines are worthy of their adjective controversial is that in some instances where the CDC guidelines, for example, um, dictate morphine uh, milligram equivalents, sometimes those equivalents are below the therapeutic dose that is recommended in the label of a particular product. And so you can't follow any guideline outright as it's set forth by any entity. You have to use your professional discretion. You have to use an array of resources that include not just any guideline or the CDC guideline, but also the resources that are available through programs like risk evaluations and mitigation strategies for the opioid medications um, or any controlled medications because others have REMS as well. You want to look at um, the labels themselves and know the labels and know what the risks are, uh, what some of the corresponding physical or health conditions or other diagnoses are that you should be aware of and address the risks of when prescribing. But as it relates to the CDC guideline, you can trust that there's going to be a heavy push by the trial bar to ensure that prescribers are actually following this. They're the ones who had an influence in getting the CDC guideline pushed through very uh, rapidly and initially not following the appropriate pr procedures under federal law. Right? They're the ones who are working very closely with the insurance industry uh, and uh, making sure that there are strong uh, guidelines that effectively limit when uh, medications um, may be made available to patients, which ultimately has an impact on the bottom line of the insurance industry, but also the trial bar when they say, well, the CDC set forth these guidelines and you didn't follow them, so you therefore are criminally negligent or civilly negligent. Um, and you have to be able to say, no, I didn't follow them because my practical experience told me that following them would have been inappropriate in this particular individualized case, right? So some things that you should be aware about this guideline, uh, it really does depend on whether you're in primary care or whether you're in pain care is whether they technically apply, but the, the reality is that there are some things that are set forth in there that are useful to you regardless of what your practice setting is, and that can easily be checked off by what you're already doing in terms of your best practices in prescribing opioid medications. Like, uh, for example, um, if you want to try non-pharmacologic and non-opioid pharmacologic treatments before prescribing an opioid, that uh, is consistent with the labeling, that's consistent with pretty much all of the recommendations that come out from any uh, professional body or um, you know, sort of a minimum that uh, you recognize that you need to do uh, before accepting the additional risk. Remember, controlled medications by their scheduling as a controlled medications carry greater risks and you have an obligation then to meet that risk with a greater duty long-standing premise in the law right part of that is of course to try other things before exposing the patient to those particular risks document the intended and actual clinical improvements so this becomes complex because documenting the intended 
clinical improvements. In some state laws now has been written into guidelines to require a written treatment plan. So you have to set forth what you're doing, what the purpose is, what's, what the timeline is, and how you're going to proceed under an ideal circumstance. And then, of course, you need to adjust the treatment plan based on changing circumstances. So that's a, a great deal of work for an individual who is not reimbursed uh, for that amount of effort that goes in to prescribing safely. But it's a reality that you have to be aware of. Counseling patients on the risks and benefits. Again, a best practice, it's now the standard of care, basically. Uh, trying IR versus ER opioids first. Again, that's uh, consistent with the labeling of the ER opioid uh, analgesic medications. Starting with the lowest effective dose goes back to the basics of managing the risks and not exposing your patient to additional risks above what are necessary medically. And then prescribing in low quantities for acute pain. And that goes to the, you know, what we hear about in terms of how terrible it is that dentists are prescribing 30 days of uh, opioid medications for minor procedures when it might be necessary only to have three days worth available. So that's what, you know, basically is sort of common sense for those of you who are professionals and know that you have to limit the risks not just to your patients, not just to their families and communities, but also to yourselves by not making those opioid medications available for purposes of abuse. Reevaluating the benefits and harms often. And in our analysis of the case law, that is what we sort of identified as active verification and vigilance. Right? So you actively verify the legitimate medical need and the condition for which you're prescribing any controlled medication. And then you remain vigilant that there is still a need, right? that there is not harm that's emanating from your prescribing of the, me the medication, right? and that it, if there is harm, that you address it. And that might include changing the treatment plan in a significant way that would not necessarily, over the medium to long term, include that particular medication. Uh, and you have to document all of that. Assessing risk factors and mitigating the risks, right? Understanding that, for example, if someone uh, is in an age uh, in life scenario where she might get pregnant, that you want to address at least the risks associated with pregnancy in taking a controlled medication and then perhaps mitigate those by doing an occasional pregnancy test, for example. Checking your state's prescription drug monitoring program before prescribing and periodically thereafter. Again, this is uh, an area where this used to be considered sort of a reasonable precaution to prevent harm, but really now it is in that number two step of uh, the standard of care. It is your ordinary course of professional practice because so many of the government entities and other uh, professional associations are recommending that you be active in verifying that the patient does not have another controlled prescription medication or if the individual does, you know about it and address the risks. But that's something you need to do before pres first prescribing any controlled medication and periodically thereafter. Um, urine drug testing, again, recommended in some states, recommended by the CDC, that's such a complicated area because there's such pressure from insurers not to do urine drug testing. You really need to put time into identifying what is your plan for urine drug testing to manage the risks of controlled prescription medications. How often do you test? When do you uh, test um, using the preliminary methodology or the immunoassay? When do you test using the more definitive 
spectrometry-based uh, methodology, what substances, analytes, or metabolites are you testing for, and how do you do all that without wasting valuable resources that really should be used for paying for co-pays or uh, co-insurance, making sure that deductibles are paid so that care is available to your patient, right? Also making sure that your urine drug testing is done in a way that does not subject you, especially if you have any sort of physician-owned lab uh, to uh, allegations of waste, fraud, or abuse. So a complex area that requires your attention, as I mentioned, avoiding the concurrent benzodiazepine use with opioid analgesics, and then referring patients when you recognize that there's an opioid use disorder. These are all reasonable things that come out of the CDC that can be combined with your other knowledge and your practice experience and then documented in a way that makes you safe and these are things that are, I don't think that are necessarily a result of the fast or perhaps the biased approach that might have been taken uh, by the CDC in addressing these guidelines. Other things like, for example, the morphine equivalents that are not based on uh, either uh, adequate scientific clinical evidence or the appropriate labeling information set forth by the FDA, you have to know your medications that you're prescribing well enough to know that it's actually a greater risk if you're prescribing an opioid under the therapeutic dose than to prescribe at greater amounts than recommended by the CDC, right? Because if you're giving it below a therapeutic dose, that, you know, what do they do? Hoard it for enough days until they actually can take three to four pills and actually get an effect? Because then they're going three to four days without any sort of uh, clinical benefit. Right? That's just setting up your patient for misuse or abuse or diversion of the controlled uh, opioid medication, right? So you have to know that, and you have to know that by doing what you're doing here, by getting educated. Legitimate medical need refers to taking the medical history and knowing what the person uh, has done to try to deal with the problem that you're addressing. Uh, if we're talking about opioid analgesics, obviously it's the pain. Doing the physical exam, verifying the diagnosis, and making sure that you're not getting a cat x-ray instead of a human x-ray, the types of you know, the stories that we hear of an egregious nature, but also just making sure that you're doing a differential diagnosis. So, for example, uh, in some instances, it might make better sense to use a biologic medication for lower back pain rather than using an opioid medication, right? So you need to do the diagnosis to make sure that what you are prescribing is medically necessary, and that goes to also trying either the non-pharmacologic or the non-controlled pharmacologic uh, options first. You're going to consider special populations and, uh, of course, address whether or not you've tried yoga, whether they've tried massage, uh, acupuncture, that sort of thing first. This is the standard of care, uh, ordinary course of professional practice. This is that number two on the list of three-plus documentation that I set forth. Informed consent, that's in every area of medical practice. That's um, a normal part of your day-to-day, -day, making sure that the care that you are giving to your patient uh, is uh, care that the patient understands and knows the risks. And that's combined now with the greater duty of counseling on the risks and benefits of the controlled medication. And this is not just opioids. The written treatment plan, I think, is probably, uh, besides creating your urine drug testing um, policy, is probably the most uh, labor-intensive of your sort of uh, back office or documentation requirements, but it really is necessary both under state law and under what is this growing um, uh, expectation 
under civil uh, and potentially even uh, criminal law. Um, and so that is something that if you don't have a process in place, you should work with your EHR system and work with some of your professional associations to get a way to efficiently create a treatment plan. And it is possible with good EHR systems and your input on uh, how to do the appropriate prompts or macros or drop downs or check boxes to create a good written treatment plan. Monitoring to assure that the uh, treatment remains suitable. So basically in your conversation and counseling with the patient, how has this medication improved your life, right? That's a simple way of asking, are the benefits outweighing the risks and detriments, right? That's one of those questions that you really can and should ask each time before you re-prescribe a medication and document the answer. Because if the, the detriments outweigh the benefits, you need to adjust the treatment plan and consider a different approach. So the reasonable steps to prevent harm, of course, uh, include before prescribing, screening for substance use, doing the PMP check, as I mentioned, urine drug testing, mental health exam to make sure that you're dealing with uh, a condition that is not further complicated by mental health uh, disorder, substance use disorder. Um, follow labeling of the medication. Uh, that's something that uh, increasingly, again, with a very aggressive trial bar, you're going to want to document if you deviate from the labeled recommendations by the FDA on the uh, medication. And then also compliance with the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy that uh, for opioid uh, medications, especially with the long-acting and extended release um, medications, there are a lot of resources out there available to you that you should utilize. And that, again, will protect you in the event that you need to defend. So in terms of um, looking at uh, what you can do in the e event of uh, uh, the, the non-compliance you know, in, in, in terms of adjusting the treatment plan, you can increase the supervision, right? Have the person come back every week or every two weeks. More frequent visits, fewer pills prescribed. Granted, that's difficult with insurance coverage, but you've got to balance what the risks are both to the patient as well as to you individually, and that needs to be something that you would consider in the event of a non-adherence to the treatment plan or other adjustment based on the fact that that risk-benefit analysis is not working out in your favor or the patient's. Counseling, of course, on the risks and adherence and the need not to consume alcohol or the risks also of using other substances. Lower the schedule of the uh, particular medication. So, for example, we see that uh, Dr. Ballantyne, who was very active in uh, creating the CDC guidelines, has recommended that if you feel like it's necessary to taper, you want to make sure it's only for gross non-compliance and issues of safety. And this is from uh, you know, one of the primary consultants on the CDC guidelines. Taper slowly. Consider buprenorphine-assisted taper, buprenorphine being a lower schedule medication that is approved both for pain as well as for opioid use disorder. And what was also interesting about her uh, statements recently in June is that um, she referred to considering opioid maintenance if taper is unsuccessful. And this is really the first time that I've seen a recognition by a prominent person associated with the government and CDC that there is this need for long-term treatment of pain and that you can use opioids over the long term, not just for opioid use disorder, but also for pain and that it is okay, right? So this is progress despite the fact that it's coming from a vocal uh, critic of the prescribing of opioids for pain. 
Right? So these are just some of the resources that I wanted to point out that are available through government um, organizations or you know, government-sanctioned uh, resources like the FDA's approval of pa a patient counseling document. This would be something that would be really good for you to employ or to replicate or to uh, mirror or model in your practice because it's been highly reviewed by the FDA. Right? Um, this is one from the BA. Right? This would be something that you would want to be very familiar with and you might want to consider implementing just with a new cover page or you know, have someone uh, retype it for your practice so that you see that this is basically a patient information guide and what used to be called a patient contract, a, a patient responsibility form. Um, that sort of thing you obviously want to utilize and document uh, so that you have all of this in your medical record. And I know it sounds really uh, daunting, but once you get a process in place that includes those prompts and macros and checks boxes and, and drop downs in an EHR, or that includes the types of resources that you know are available through the various entities that are now trying to get involved to reduce the inappropriate prescribing of opioids and the harms, that you can have a system that includes all of this and it will not, after your initial outlay of efforts, be something that is unsustainable. All right? um, and again, how has this treatment improved your life? Another important and crucial reminder for people who prescribe controlled medications is to kick up, not to kick them out. All right? Both uh, under your moral obligation and under your legal obligation related to your professional ethics, and civil law, that abandonment is when you say, I'm just not going to care for you anymore, or I'm just going to cut off your care because you've done something that puts me at risk. You, you can't do that. And that's consistent with Dr. Ballantyne's statement about using force taper only in gross noncompliance and issues of safety. The person's likely to have an overdose. Uh, and then to taper slowly, increase the level of care to address you know, what the risks are, uh, oftentimes, those risks might be concomitant uh, illicit substance use, the risk of overdose and death, of course, being those issues of safety that would uh, perhaps lead to a forced taper, uh, but again, doing it in a way that uh, portrays compassion for the individual and an understanding of how you are also obligated to make sure that this person continues to get the care and is not forced to go to the street, to the black market, to get illicit fentanyl or heroin or other perhaps prescribed controlled medications that are not appropriate for that individual. Related to urine drug testing, you want to have a written policy in place and you want to uh, develop that policy in a way that reflects the standard of care and best practices and that's constantly changing especially if you consider the distinctions between the care that's provided for pain versus the care that's provided for substance use disorder. There's differing guidance, differing assessments of how you adjust the risk or address the risk. Um, you want to have the objective reasons for testing instead of profiling and suspicion. This person looks like he or she uh, is non-compliant or would be non-compliant, or this one looks like he or she has friends who might be drug dealers, right? You don't do that. It's sort of a universal precautions approach to the risks of controlled medications and the risks of substance use disorders, right? And so you have a plan that doesn't require you to profile or just rely on suspicion for when you're going to test. And then you have to optimally use limited healthcare resources, number one, so that you can get paid, whether that be by out-of-pocket co-pays and deductibles and all that you are required to collect, but also so that insurers don't just cut you off and say no drug testing for your patients because you're overutilizing. And that's increasingly occurring as well. 
So you put into place the principles uh, in your policy that are then adapted to meet individual needs, but urine drug testing needs to be individualized. That's something also that it goes to the crucial question of medical need, medical necessity. Is this unique and needed for this particular patient? Because an 80-year-old woman who's been adherent on a hydrocodone treatment plan for 10 years is different from an individual who's 21 years old and is taking stimulant medications for ADHD in college and potentially at risk for having those medications diverted from him or her, right? So these are the things that you have to address you also need to identify what the frequency is, and that can be based either on the risk as you assess it in pain, or perhaps the days of abstinence or the days of uh, adherence to the treatment plan uh, and non-substance use in the uh, context of opioid use disorder. And then what you test and why. It's imperative that you test in a way that reflects that the uh, immunoassay or preliminary tests have a lower level of reliability if you give thought to both the methodology and the science behind the testing as well as the cutoff levels. Definitive, on the other hand, though, is more expensive, and so you have to test less frequently or else you're going to be subject to scrutiny, especially if you have your own lab. And so you've got to balance those out to make sure that you're choosing the analytes and metabolites in a way that are relevant to the treatment plan and the individual's risks, and then also uh, the methodology so that it appropriately addresses the risk and give you the information that you need to drive care, uh, but without uh, excessively utilizing healthcare resources. Uh, and so you document the results of urine drug testing. It's not just circling that you see that it's positive for the prescribed medication or that it's negative for illicit substances. You actually want to uh, uh, do a, a note in the chart saying UDT uh, is as expected and therefore we're going to uh, continue the treatment as plan as follows, or you know, we are nearing the point on the treatment plan where we discuss an eventual voluntary taper, something like that that effectively uh, allows you to explain why it was medically necessary. Because right? if you don't do anything with it, you're not going to be able to make a case that it was medically necessary, and then you're subject not just to the recoupment, but potentially even if there is uh, any sort of ownership interest um, by yourself or one of your partners or employers, there could be a claim that you were uh, fraudulently urine, uh, doing urine drug testing, and that, again, is a risk to you. So I've uh, set forth the references for uh, a lot of the statements that I made, and I uh, think that we're, how are we on time? Are we at any time for questions? All right, so I apologize that I did go over. I hope this was helpful. If we have any questions, we've got some time, and then I'm also available and will be outside in the hallway if uh, you would like to speak. Uh, yes, you had a question. So the question is, if you're an opioid uh, prescriber and you know that someone has a benzodiazepine prescription from another provider, what's your duty there? And my recommendation, again, uh, this is just sort of what would be a best practice, is uh, contact that prescriber at the very least. Ideally, in writing, let that individual know in writing so you've got a document uh, in your records showing that uh, you found it was medically necessary despite the risks of the benzodiazepine use. Make sure that you also... Uh, do some sort of documentation as to how you know that uh, you know, this risk is manageable and that the benefit would be greater 
by actually prescribing the opioid in light of the additional risk related to the benzodiazepine. And then if you, as part of the treatment plan, the individual uh, is supposed to taper off of one, uh, you're going to need to very closely coordinate with the, the other prescriber to make sure that that individual is on board as well. And you're giving coordinated care so that the, you know, the taper of one uh, is consistent with the treatment plan that's identified and set forth by the other. Beyond that, I don't have necessarily more uh, specifics, but you, you, know, you want to address all of the risks of combining the medications and document them and communicate thoroughly. Yes? So it's a really uh, good question. What's the difference between abandoning the patient and firing the patient? Well, uh, in the best practices, uh, firing the patient uh, is something that probably is not ideal because... As you're seeing now, there's increasing guidance uh, and recommendations that are soon to be standard of care if they're not already that suggest that you know, f forced taper is only in extreme circumstances of safety. Well, that sounds like if you're firing the patient, that's not even forced taper. That's just cutting them off and sending them to the streets. That's a risk, I think. Uh, the risk, of course, is counterbalanced by the fact that you know, the, the person, you know, um, it likely is going to be at a lower risk of overdosing on the medication that you prescribed. That helps you know, potentially the patient, but also you individually. But you know, the, the better approach is to look at how you increase supervision, document that you're providing additional um, uh, safety uh, counseling and um, the, the practical steps to try to ensure that the person does not or cannot overdose and then if you feel like it's a safety circumstance that requires taper, then do it, do it in a way that reflects um, the guidance instead of just kicking someone out. Again, the better approach is to kick someone up to a higher level of supervision. I'm, I'm confused. I thought we had the right to fire the patient provided we gave one month treatment and referral information to three or four other providers in the community who would have accepted care. Okay. So that's, you, not a, that's not available to no, I think what you, when you said fire, I, I assume that you're just cutting them off and saying you're done. So. Right. Yeah, I think I think that we're seeing that with the CDC guidelines and other recommendations that are coming out, and uh, also some of the uh, standards that are coming from other areas of treatment, not necessarily pain, but for example with opioid use disorder treatment, that I, I think that you're seeing that there is going to be a greater obligation, and that you should think about creating a plan that would actually be more in line with what we saw uh, the recommendations from Dr. Ballantyne where you manage either making sure that the person is in the hands of uh, someone who confirms that I've had a consultation with in this individual and I'm uh, taking over care or you, you know, give thought to the, the taper over you know, the 10% uh, per month because uh, while it might be justifiable at this point and you've got documentation of it which you should always make sure to include in your medical record, I, I think that we are heading in a direction where the best practice, uh, if not the standard of care, is actually to kick them up to a higher level of supervision and make sure that they are not relegated to the streets after that 30-day period. Okay. <laughs> yes, and it's happened. Yes.
Right. So, it's, yeah, so the comment is if they've already gotten something from the street, then you, you know that the, you know, the risk is even higher. Um, so I think, again, this, this goes to following what you can find in your, document, in your guidance right, from your professional practice. Like if you say that there's a medical legal term firing that uh, is in your, uh, your professional association's recommendations, for example, and document that you followed those, you're at a stronger point than uh, not following those. Um, but you might want to consider taking a more active role in making sure that the person gets care by another more uh, appropriate provider. Yes. I think uh, that it makes sense for you to document that, you know, in the course of your uh, visit, you have identified that the benefits of treatment are outweighing the risks and how that is, right? So what is going on in that person's life that gives you something to say on a stand that indicates that you're doing right by continuing to prescribe a controlled medication because, right, Yeah, I, I think that if you're, if you're in charge of the patient's health and you know that the person has a substance use disorder or at least problematic substance use and you are treating the person in a way that involves addressing substances, that if you're not doing more than just saying adios, right, and you're not addressing the substance use in a way that's meaningful... One of the things that I would think that your addiction medicine specialist would want to uh, give thought to is you know, whether or not it makes sense to uh, put the person on buprenorphine for maintenance or you know, a, a medication that would allow the person to keep coming back also because the more that you can check in with the individual from an addiction medicine perspective, the greater likelihood is that if you increase the abstinence over a duration of time, the greater hood of you know, continuing an abstinence uh, you know, that, that a greater likelihood uh, continues to increase. So, I, you know, I, I still recommend that remaining involved in a way that manages the risks to both you and the patient. And your addiction medicine uh, you know, specialist could probably, you know, I'm assuming the ASAM American Society of Addiction Medicine guidelines have recommendations for how to deal with this sort of patient. But keeping them engaged is better than just sending them out. Or it is not valid. Because if, if I feel 
Right. Yes. I mean, if you, you know, that's a whole different issue. Um, no, no. I mean, you know, you don't have to have every potential risk addressed in your uh, agreement or your informed consent. What, what you want to do is uh, address, you know, the risks associated with the treatment that you're providing in terms of controlled medications. And a millennial who can't take no for an answer is, you know, th that's a whole different thing that you address. The, the question is, though, how do you deal with that individual in a way that doesn't constitute just cutting the person off? Uh, and, you know, if you give them sort of a take-it-or-leave-it offer where, you know, I will allow you to taper using buprenorphine. Uh, yeah, I, I defer to your 20 years of practice experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that, that in and of itself could be perhaps drug-seeking behavior. Right, yeah, I think that's totally, that's, Totally different. So I think we've got to uh, run, but I'm, I'll be out in the hallway. And thank you all very much for your attention.